Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are reactions from the NFL draft and who were the biggest winners and losers. Plus, at the end of the NHL regular season, who will fill out the remaining playoff positions? And is the play-in tournament really a good thing or a bad thing for the NBA? It's episode 23 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Thursday, May 6th, 2021, the Jordan episode for Let Me Speak. That's right, we're on episode 23, and yes, I did say Jordan. No LeBron. It will always be Jordan who will link up with number 23. Now, before we get into things, I want to wish everyone out there a belated happy Cinco de Mayo for all the amigos and amigas out there, and also... A belated May the 4th for all the nerds out there celebrating that Star Wars Day. I definitely have a lot of people that I know on all of those sides. But let's just get right into things because we are one week post the NFL Draft. And we had our 22nd episode come out at the time the first round was getting underway. But now enough time has passed. The seven rounds have gone by and we can really start to analyze what these teams are doing for the future here in the NFL. And before getting into the draft, let's just talk about that scene in Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, seeing a full crowd, fans excited, it's almost like nothing ever happened. That that just made me smile looking at it on Thursday night. That was such a great scene to see. I understand it's Cleveland, Ohio, but just seeing a crowd like that, seeing the energy, stuff like that, that just made me smile and gives me a lot of hope that someday we'll be able to get back to where we once were, or at least relatively close. Now, in terms of the draft itself, before we get into the winners and losers, I just wanted to take some time and look at what I think were the best individual picks. So these were sort of the picks by teams that maybe weren't a winner or a loser, maybe right in the middle in terms of the entire draft. But in terms of their selections, I think they made great moves. And the first one I thought of was Devontae Smith at number 10 to the Eagles. Teaming up with Jalen Hurts, the Eagles needed weapons. And who better to get than the Heisman Trophy winner? Now, it remains to be seen what Smith can do without that high-powered Alabama offense with Mac Jones and Jalen Waddell and all that. So we'll have to see what happens in a Jalen Hurts-style offense. But I like the Eagles making that move. I mean, the wide receiver class in that first round was absolutely stacked with Jamar Chase and the aforementioned Waddle, I just said. The fact that the Heisman Trophy winner went in the top 10 behind them and went to Philly, I like that move. And I also like what Cleveland did with their first-round pick, getting Greg Newsom the second. I think... Really, the only flaw they had was just the health of their secondary, and I think Newsom is a great talent to add in there to Cleveland, bolstering that defense, because really, we knew the defensive line could play well, and we know they're going to get better because they had added a bunch of other pieces, but shoring up that secondary is absolutely huge for Cleveland, and I would not be surprised to see them at the top of the AFC North pending the expectations and then lastly of course this is the move that everyone's been talking about and it's the bears the chicago bears trading up to the 11th pick to pick up what they hope is finally their franchise quarterback in justin fields now i like chicago doing this because i did not hear any kind of rumblings that the bears were going to move up i mean they had us all totally in belief that andy dalton And Nick Foles were their two quarterbacks they were going to run with for 2021. And that they're hoping 
now with Justin Fields that they can develop behind some seasoned quarterbacks. Nick Foles obviously winning the Super Bowl. Andy Dalton having a couple of great years with Cincinnati. Obviously, Justin Fields, it remains to be seen if he is that answer that Chicago has been looking for for almost 20, maybe 30 years now. But I I like Justin Fields. I think... I think he can develop into a good quarterback. Maybe not a great or an all-time quarterback, but I think someone that Chicago can finally rely on. And there's just much more potential, I think, with Justin Fields versus when Chicago took Mitchell Trubisky uh, and traded up to the number two pick many years ago. So those are the three picks that I think were maybe some of the best. But in overall... Draft winners, before I talk about the teams, I think two draft picks were winners on that night. And that's Trey Lance and Mac Jones. Because where their projections had them a couple of weeks ago, we're talking about basically them flip-flopping. Mac Jones was projected to go to San Fran and go number three. And Trey Lance was going to be hovering somewhere around that top ten. But now they basically flip. Trey Lance goes to San Fran. Mac Jones goes to the Pats. I think Lance is in a great situation with the 49ers versus the other places he could have gone, like Carolina or Denver or any other place like that. And then Mac Jones, obviously, he said himself he wanted to go to New England, and sure enough, he gets picked at number 15 by his former college head coach's favorite connection in Bill Belichick. So, those two individuals, I think, were big winners. But in terms of teams that were big winners, I think the first one, obviously, is the team that started off the entire draft, and that's the Jacksonville Jaguars. I think they put themselves in a really good spot with what Urban Meyer is developing down there in Jacksonville, Florida. Obviously, we knew Trevor Lawrence was going to be the number one pick. He was going to get selected. He was going to Jacksonville, Florida. But just the pieces around him, I mean... Seeing the Jaguars draft the Clemson running back, Travis Etienne, getting them at number 25, that just shows me what this franchise thinks of Trevor Lawrence and that he is the answer. He is the ultimate answer. and This is banking on that he is all that he is hyped up to be because they didn't need a running back. Absolutely not. They had an astounding season from James Robinson, really showing himself to be a star. But yet, here they are, getting not only Lawrence's friend, but his teammate from Clemson. And it's kind of funny where it's kind of like a Jamar Chase, Joe Burrow thing, where maybe there was a year in between before they teamed up. But these guys were literally beside each other the entire time and now they're not going to leave each other's side because they're both going to the same team so that just shows me what Jacksonville thinks of Trevor Lawrence and they think that Trevor Lawrence will be this answer he will be their Tom Brady their Peyton Manning their Aaron Rodgers their Drew Brees you name it that's what Jacksonville thinks of Trevor Lawrence and it still remains to be seen because we've seen a bunch of number one picks get hyped up, but fall short of expectations. Look at Robert Griffin III. Look at most recently Mitchell Trubisky, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, all these expectations, and they just don't match up. But on paper, it looks like Jacksonville's doing a great thing right now because they got all their needs addressed with all their other picks. I like Tyson Campbell coming out of Georgia in that secondary basically they need to overload everything Andre Sisco from Syracuse at safety in the third round getting Jordan Smith from UAB Jay Tufili from USC Luke Farrell the tight end out of Ohio State I think they met all their needs they got all their needs addressed and that was on the defensive line and in the secondary and I like what Jacksonville is doing and depending on what happens in the AFC North I mean you've got The Colts going in a new direction. Houston's an absolute mess. And Tennessee, we don't know if they can stay this way, but Jacksonville could get themselves to the top. Maybe not this year, but I would say in the next couple of years. If everything goes according to Urban Meyer's plan, Jacksonville can find themselves back in contention. 
and get themselves back to their winning ways. Now another big winner I would say, and I really do hate to say it, but the team that picked right after him, the New York Jets, I thought they made some really good improvements. And it's it's so hard to say, speaking from a New England fan, but I really do like what uh, the Jets did in that draft. Obviously getting Zach Wilson, they knew Wilson was their guy out of BYU with that number two pick. But then what they did later on in the first round, trading to get the 14th pick and getting the guard Elijah Vera Tucker from USC. I think getting him from in a trade from Minnesota is absolutely huge because you pair him with Makai Becton, who you do not understand is a big, big guy. He's huge. He's like 6'7", 360. I mean, Zach Wilson's left side is totally good. It is all good now. And really, I think New York, they were okay. Obviously, they, they struggled 2-14, and 14, but... I think they have a good wide receiver and tight end core. I think they have a lot of good pass catchers that will really get the best out of Zach Wilson. I mean, you pick up Corey Davis in the offseason. You've got Jamison Crowder. You've got Chris Herndon, your tight end. Keelan Cole, Braxton Berrios. I think their their pass catching core is is good than is is better than most people think. And I just think the problems in past years was A, the offensive line, and B, Sam Darnold wasn't exactly the answer. But I think this is a good move that the Jets are making is to get their quarterback and to get him protection. Get him some protection. I really like Vera Tucker at 14. Like I said, pairing him with Becton and put on all the other pass-catching options that the Jets have, I think this offense is going to be a lot better. I think it's going to be a lot better. The problem, though, I think is in their secondary. Because really, you could just tell in 2020 that the whole left from when they traded Jamal Adams was left there. Is that they've just been struggling at safety. I mean, look at this draft. They signed, or drafted, I should say, five defensive backs, including three safeties. All right? Pat, uh, partner that with getting LaMarcus Joyner having to go with Marcus May. They've definitely got a lot of options when it comes to that safety position that Jamal Adams once had. But I think the Jets will be better than their 2-14 and record. I still think in the AFC East, they're probably the third, uh, fourth best team. I would say they're probably the worst team, but I think they do get better. And kind of like Jacksonville, if not this year, maybe in the next couple of years. But I'll tell you, that AFC East is going to be absolutely stacked for for years to come. Years to come. And then finally, I'd say the last team that did well, and I hate to trigger this much, but Dallas did really good. Let the Cowboys fans rejoice as it just looks like they got themselves together. Because defense was the biggest problem for the Cowboys. That was it. And then obviously losing Dak Prescott. That was the second biggest thing. But when it's an overall landscape... Defense was the issue, and they used all but three of their picks on defenders. And obviously, you start with Micah Parsons at that 12th spot. I think he could be the next big linebacker, because look at what's going on with the linebacker position in Dallas. You have Sean Lee, who just retired. Leighton Van Der Esch's fifth-year option was declined. And then, of course, you have Jalen Smith, who's a rising star. I think for at least this year, that's a three-headed monster at linebacker with Vander Esch, Smith, and Parsons. I really like that. And I think Parsons can be the next big linebacker for that Cowboys team. And then in the secondary, you obviously have Kelvin Joseph from Kentucky at cornerback. And then you have Nashawn Wright from the third round from Oregon State. I think they're going to improve the secondary. And then this is a sneaky good pick you got to watch out for. Osa Odigizua, the defensive tackle from UCLA. I think that bolsters the D-line, gives him some depth behind Demarcus Lawrence. I think that's a great pick for Dallas. And I think the Cowboys separated themselves in the NFC East. I think they're better than Washington right now. I think they're better than the Eagles right now. And I think they're better than the Giants. And I think when you have a healthy Dak Prescott... Combining with Zeke Elliott and Tony Pollard, I might add. Two great running backs for Dallas. And then obviously Amari Cooper, 
doing amazing things. If that offense is back to where it once was when Prescott was healthy, this is going to be a very dangerous Cowboys team in 2021. Now to go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about the losers from the seventh round NFL draft. And one kind of stuck out to me when I was watching that first round of the draft after recording on Thursday. And that was what the Cincinnati Bengals did. I mean, you have the fifth pick and you have a ton of options on the O-line. Okay, what's your number one option? Keeping your franchise quarterback healthy. You couldn't do that in 2020. He blows out his knee, and we don't know if he'll ever be the same. But with your fifth pick, you pick a wide receiver. Burrow's former teammate. I mean, yeah, it makes sense, but I don't think getting Jamar Chase is more important than keeping Joe Burrow on his feet. I mean, look who they passed on. Panay Sewell, who went seventh to the Lions. Okay, what about Rayshon Slater, who went to the Chargers at 13? Elijah Vera Tucker, who I just mentioned. Leatherwood from Alabama. They had so many options on the offensive line. And it just feels like they didn't do any kind of improvements. I mean, Jackson Carmen from Clemson? I don't know. I don't think he's the answer. I don't think Deontay Smith from East Carolina from the fourth round will be the answer. I mean, you could have had... Two offensive linemen who were projected as possible top 10 picks to protect your your franchise. I just, I don't get it. I don't get it for Cincinnati. I like Jamar Chase. I think he's a good wide receiver, and I think he'll help Cincinnati. But there's no way that you can pick Joe Burrow's former college teammate over keeping him on his two feet. That That's just where, where I stand with this. You know, maybe Joe Burrow was in that that boardroom saying, hey, you got to pick up Jamar Chase. I can do this. I don't need an offensive line. We'll, we'll see if he's saying that while his butt's still on the ground and hopefully getting sacked like 30 times. We'll, we'll see. We'll see about that. We'll just see if Cincinnati makes any kind of O-line improvements. But that's my biggest loser is just not getting the top O-line help that we saw with Sewell and Slater, all these great offensive linemen, and they wait till the second round to get their best O-linemen. I, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Something else I don't get is where was Seattle in this draft? Where were the Seahawks in this draft? They only made three picks in seven rounds. Three picks, okay? This is a team that has as many quarterback questions as anyone else in the league. Okay, we don't know what Russell Wilson's future holds in Seattle. And if you're trying to convince him to stay, getting three picks and drafting three picks when it feels like you haven't done anything in this offseason is the biggest loser for me. The biggest loser is Seattle. And not only that, but Seattle needed help on defense. Okay? They were the worst defense in the league. One of the worst defenses in the league. And you spend one of your three picks on defense. If you only have three picks in the draft, you need to go all defense. Okay? Dwayne Eskridge from the second round doesn't help with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. He's not a game changer. Trey Brown from the fourth round, he was that defensive player out of the secondary. He gives him depth. He's not a, a game-changing defensive back. And then Stone Forsyth out of the sixth round. He's not going to do anything. He's not He's not going to do that much. He's just not as your offensive tackle. All right? Seattle, I I would argue, maybe the biggest loser over Cincinnati, I would say. Because this was a team that needed to get better in a much more competitive NFC West with the Rams getting Matthew Stafford, with the 49ers getting all of their guys healthy. Come on, Seattle. Really? This is this is how you're driving Russell Wilson out of Seattle, is not doing anything. Not doing anything. That's the biggest problem that I see. And then the third loser for me, 
I would say similar to Seattle are the Houston Texans because they did not have basically any selections and they are a team in total disarray like right now. They are an absolute mess. Okay, they're the they were the third worst defense overall in yards allowed per game in 2020. And out of their five picks, five picks, only two of them were for defenders. Only two were on defense. Okay, you pick up David Mills from Stanford, the quarterback. What, is he going to be your replacement for Deshaun Watson? Because no one's going to take him now with all the allegations Watson's facing. So Deshaun Watson is going to be your guy. I mean, Garrett Wallow from TCU at linebacker in the fifth round. And Roy Lopez, defensive tackle out of Arizona. <laughs> this is not a good situation in Houston right now. They are definitely, to me, at the cellar of the AFC South. I would say below Jacksonville, below Tennessee, and below Indianapolis. Because they are an absolute mess. An absolute mess. And I don't see it getting any better in the near future. Unless they magically somehow get their offense back the way it was, and actually have a good defensive season, which I don't see as the case at all. But you know, this is only one week after the NFL draft. There could be a ton of things get that could be different after OTAs and training camp, and once the regular season of the NFL gets underway. Next, we take the ice and talk about the NHL. And before you know it, the playoffs are going to be here because almost every team is going to be finishing their regular season in about a week. Most teams have about only two or three games left to go. Of course, there are some exceptions for teams that were dealing with uh, their COVID precautions and all that, mostly in the North Division. But there are still a couple of playoff spots to be had and I want to focus on the central and the west division right now because everyone in the east everything in the east has been locked up and the north division still has a lot kind of a long ways to go Vancouver still has about nine games to go and Montreal has a sizable lead over Calgary right now so I think Montreal is going to be able to get that fourth and final spot over the Calgary Flames but like I said I want to focus on the Central Division and I want to focus on the West Division so we start in the Central and there is one spot remaining we know the Hurricanes have clinched the Lightning have clinched and the Panthers have clinched there is one spot left and it's between the Predators and between the Stars right now the Preds are up four four points over the Stars right now and the Stars have been struggling very recently they haven't won a game in five games but the good news is is that they do travel to Chicago and the Blackhawks have struggled and they've lost six straight so ending the season there that might get them back into things but they obviously are going to have one more game against the Lightning that they have to deal with so that might be that might be the biggest problem I mean the Stars are basically going to have to win out. They're down four points right now. They've got three games left. The Predators have two games left. And what Nashville still has to do, they have to host the division-leading Hurricanes twice. They're going to play the Hurricanes twice. Now, obviously, it's going to depend on what kind of team the Hurricanes are because they have three games left, and they're looking for that number one seed. They're looking for that number one spot. They're up four points right now on the Lightning so really, all they have to do is win one out of their next three, and I think they'll be able to clinch. I don't know about the tiebreakers and all that, but back to the Predators and the Stars. The Stars, like I said, they're going to have to win out, and they're going to have to do it on the power play. I mean, they're tied for sixth in the league in power play percentage. And not only that, but their defense is seventh in goals allowed per game. And I think... The difference for Dallas could be the return of Tyler Sagan because he gives you that energy with Joe Pavelski, Jamie Benn, all those guys. And I think 
the Stars might be able to find a way to keep it close. But they're going to have to have Anton Hudob and their goaltender have a stellar game. Because they can't be doing what they've done to basically drop five straight, two in overtime. And the biggest thing is going to have to be Hudobin pitching a shutout. That's basically what's going to have to happen for this Dallas team. Dallas, to get into this, is they have to win out. And Nashville, all they have to do is win maybe one of two games to get themselves into things. That's really all it is to clinch. Because like I said, the Hurricanes might be resting their guys over these last three games for them. So they might not bring out their first and second lines as much. So that might be an advantage for Nashville to get one of those two games. Honestly, when all is said and done, I think Nashville does hold on. I think they're going to get themselves back into the postseason. I think they'll get that fourth and final spot. This is still a team that went to the Stanley Cup only a short number of years ago. So there is still a ton of talent on this Predators team. And ultimately, I do think they might get bounced by the Hurricanes or the Lightning, whoever comes up with that first spot. But I would say that the Predators have the best shot of making that last playoff spot. I think they get it over the Stars. Now to shift to the Western Division, almost everything is set in stone. You've got the Golden Knights in first with 76 points, Avalanche in second with 72, Wild in third with 71, and then it's basically down to three teams. Three teams, and that's the Blues, the Coyotes, and the Kings, who are all separated by eight points. St. Louis has the six-point advantage over the Coyotes and a eight-point advantage over the Kings. But you got to keep in mind, the Blues still have five games left. Five games left, the Coyotes only have three. So they are going to have to win out. The Coyotes are going to have to win out to at least have a chance. It's still kind of a long shot at this moment. You win your last two games, that only gets you to 54. I... It's just hard. It's hard to tell because I think the Blues have put themselves in a really good spot having a six-point advantage but still five games left to go while the Coyotes only have two left. I think the the thing for St. Louis, though, is that they're going to have to play the Knights and the Wild in four of their last five games. I think that's the biggest thing. So then... I ultimately think it will come down to the Blues or the Kings. And I think, again, the Blues just have the talent. Remember, they're coming off a of Stanley Cup only two years ago, and they still have some of that talent. Obviously, Jordan Biddington has to be a better goaltender than what he's been. I mean, he's barely in the top 25 in statistical categories, so he's going to have to be a lot better. And then players other than Ryan O'Reilly and David Perrin are going to have to put up some points. So I'm talking Mike Hoffman. I'm talking Tory Krug. Once Vladimir Tarasenko comes back and he's healthy, get him into the action. Get him some points. So that is the ultimate thing for me. I think the Blues, they do win out. They have the same amount of games remaining as the Kings. They've got five games left. they got an eight-point advantage. So really, all they got to do is just win. They just need to win one of their next five games, and I think they can clinch. I really do think that they can clinch because the Kings are in a win-out scenario. So just saying we'll go into the scenario that St. Louis doesn't win any of their five games. That will put them at 56 points still. The Kings, if they win all five of their games, that will get them to 58. So basically the Kings are going to have to win out if St. Louis drops all five of their games. And that's really putting them behind the eight ball. That's asking a lot from Los Angeles. That's asking a lot from Los Angeles, especially when you look at what their schedule has. It's not a favorable schedule considering what this team has done over the season, basically. When you look at what they have to finish with, they have to play St. Louis, don't forget that, but they have to face the Avalanche four times they host them twice starting friday in back-to-backs and then they travel to colorado for a back-to-back starting on wednesday 
May 12th. So it's not a favorable schedule for Los Angeles. And that's why I think St. Louis is the biggest difference maker right now. Because they're going to have to play them in between facing the second best team in the Western Division in the Colorado Avalanche. So I like the Blues. I like the Blues. I think the Coyotes are going to get eliminated within their next couple of games. They only got two left, but I think they're going to get eliminated right away. And then the Kings, they're going to have to win out. If they drop even one of their games, their season's over. And all St. Louis has to do is just win. That's all they got to do. If they win or L.A. loses twice, then that's it. It's all over. The West is clinched. And then, like I said, briefly touching upon the North right now, like I said, the Canadians, they're 10 ahead of the Flames with four games left. And the Flames have five games left. Again, they're going to have to win out. And then, obviously, the Canucks are 16 points back, and they have nine games left. So, again, they're going to have to win out as well. So, I think the Canadians will find themselves in that fourth and final spot in the Northern Division. But it will definitely be a lot of fun once playoff time in the NHL gets underway. Next up, we turn to the NBA, and we get near the end of their regular season, and it's a very exciting time, especially with this play-in tournament. Two extra teams in each conference being qualified for the playoffs, and obviously it is so tight right now between the line of who makes the play-in, who doesn't make the play-in, and right now we're kind of seeing the end. We're seeing which 10 teams might be the ones to qualify for that play-in but some people are not happy with the play-in one of them being Los Angeles Lakers LeBron James and everyone knows that when LeBron makes a comment everyone will listen whether you like it or not and he's not a fan of the play-in and he had a very hot take on this play-in which will be the subject of let me speaks version of Hot takes. Oh, hot, 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 So to paraphrase LeBron James's quote, he said about the play-in, whoever came up with that expletive, starting with an S, needs to be fired immediately. Fired immediately? I mean, wow. Let's just keep this in mind before we really dive into it. The Lakers are 37 and 28 right now. Dallas owns the tiebreaker for the fifth spot in the Western Conference, and they're only a half game up on the Portland Trailblazers for the very first play-in spot at number seven. So keep that in mind. But when you look at the play-in scenario, getting two extra teams in each conference, so it would be four in total, okay, is it a good idea? You have to think about that. Now, to me... This is a wait-and-see approach. It's a big wait-and-see because you sort of understand what the NBA is trying to do for their postseason, and that's to make the playoffs more competitive and see some more upsets. I mean, going back and seeing more of what happened in 2007 when the Warriors, who were the eighth seed at the time, upset the number one Dallas Mavericks. That was the team with... Baron Davis and Matt Barnes and all of them. Or a team like in 2012 when the 76ers were the 8th seed and they upset the number 1 Chicago Bulls. Of course, this was the Bulls right after Derrick Rose tore his ACL. This was the exact same series, so that's a little bit different. But you sort you understand what the NBA is trying to do. You understand what they're looking for in adding four extra teams. Because this would have been great like six or seven years ago. Because I just, I wrote this down looking at, you know, standings of the past. Look at the 2014 season, 2013, 2014. The Phoenix Suns were 48 and 34, but they missed the playoffs. The next year, 2014, 2015 season, the Oklahoma City Thunder 
were 45 and 37, but they missed the playoffs. They were the ninth seed. Okay? And then as recently as the 2017-2018 season, the Denver Nuggets were 46 and 36 and they missed the playoffs. Okay? Now look at the teams who are in contention right now in the postseason. Okay? We have about six or seven, maybe more, who are hovering around or at under 500. I mean, looking at the standings in the Eastern Conference right now for teams that are making the postseason, the eighth seed is Charlotte. They're 32 and 33. Indiana's in ninth. They're 30 and 35. The 10th seed is Washington. They're 30 and 36. Okay? And then in the Western Conference, the Grizzlies are in eighth. They're 33 and 32. The Warriors are in ninth. They're 33 and 33. The Spurs are in 10th. They're 31 and 34. That's why you have guys who might not like this, is because we're seeing teams with subpar seasons still make the postseason. When years ago, I just listed it the Suns, the Thunder, and the Nuggets, who are about 10 or 12 games above 500. And they couldn't even make the postseason. In today's league, if you have that kind of record, you get a top three. You get a top three. And obviously, it's different this year with the pandemic and stuff like that. But going to the last, quote-unquote, regular regular NBA season, which was 2018-2019. If you're 48-34, and 34, that would put you ahead of... Of the Indiana Pacers who finished 5th in the conference. Okay? That's just... It's insane. That's why... That's why it's a bad thing. That's why some guys don't like the play-in. Is because we're seeing teams under 500 make the playoffs. And that's the biggest issue. That's sort of... That's where I have my problem with this play-in. Is that if we're seeing scenarios like the Suns, the Thunder, the Nuggets and we see them get into the playoffs, then it would be a good thing. But we're seeing many teams under 500, well below 500, still make the playoffs. Like, when you go to the playoffs, you're supposed to see the best of the best. Best of the best. And we're seeing teams under 500 still make the postseason. That's why if you're playing devil's advocate, you have to go... Back to those eight teams. Those eight teams in the playoffs. No plan at all. And that's why only, only if we had eight teams in 2021, the Hornets would be the only team under 500 making the playoffs in the East. And everyone in the Western Conference at this moment would be above 500 making the playoffs. The Warriors at 500 and the Spurs three games below 500 don't deserve to get into the playoffs. Because... They had subpar seasons. Now, like I said, going back to LeBron and his comments, he knows the Lakers are title contenders. He knows that they're the defending champs. They He knows that they don't belong in a play-in where anything can happen. You know, you lose one game and all of a sudden you're going back to the 8th seed or the ninth seed, and then you basically got to win out. He knows that. He's no, He knows that. So th- this is ultimately what LeBron is talking about. It's sort of a selfish way of saying my team is better than this stupid play-in scenario. We're better than the Memphis Grizzlies, the Golden State Warriors, the San Antonio Spurs, stuff like that. But when you look at the play-in aspect overall, it is a wait and see. Because if we see these teams and they come out and they perform well, maybe get an upset or at least take it a long series to whoever the top two teams might be in each conference, then you could say, okay, maybe this is a success. Maybe it's a good thing. But if we're seeing, you know, Philadelphia or Brooklyn or Utah and Phoenix basically wipe the floor with whoever they get out of the play-in, then you just, you go away with it. You go away with it. Now this could be, it could be a temporary thing, while the NBA is surviving the pandemic. And it could this could just be a one-off thing. Me personally, at this moment, 
I don't like it. I don't, I, I'm not the biggest fan right now at this moment. But like I said, it's a wait and see. If I see competitive games and whoever comes out of that playoff, uh, whoever comes out of that play in, if they take a series a long way with the one or the two seed, then I'll say, okay, maybe this is a good thing. This makes the league more competitive. Then I would change my mind. At this moment, I don't like seeing three teams in the Eastern Conference under 500 make the playoffs. I don't like seeing basically three teams hover around 500 in the West and still make the playoffs. So that's all it is. I like seeing teams that are successful make the postseason. But like I said, it's a wait and see. If someone from the play-in pulls out the upset, then I will hop on the bandwagon and say, you know what, I like this play-in tournament, keep it going. But I don't think, to contrast LeBron, I don't think this person needs to be fired immediately. No. It's just a lot of frustration coming out of LeBron James, and we'll just have to see what happens with the play-in once the postseason gets underway. to the segment that our Massachusetts listeners have been waiting for. It's our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And of course, we have to talk about what the New England Patriots did in the NFL draft. I mentioned that Mac Jones was a big winner. And I think what New England did in the draft, I I think they were good, not great. But I just think the ultimate prize was getting Mac Jones. And not only that, but just... Belichick outsmarting everyone because we heard it over and over and over that the Pats were going to move up to get a Justin Fields or move back for a corner. What does Bill do? He just sits there and lets everything else unfold and lets Mac Jones fall to him. Fall to him. That That's what gets me so excited. Not so much for for Mac Jones because... I don't think, you know, he's not the next Tom Brady. I'm not going to say that. He's he's the savior. But I think, obviously, Nick Saban and Belichick, they talked. Saban really hyped him up. And you heard Mac Jones himself. He wanted to go to New England. Because, really, New England to the NFL is what Alabama is to the college game. That's pretty much the case. And Mac Jones, he's just a good decision maker. That's the ultimate thing for Mac Jones. He's a good decision maker. The Pats do nothing but have guys who make good decisions. That's the big thing. And then you give them all these weapons like Jonu Smith, Hunter Henry, Kendrick Bourne, Nelson Aguilar, all these weapons. Now, I do think it's going to be a big competition. It's going to be a QB competition. At this moment... I would still give the starting job to Cam Newton, but there's still plenty of time to see Mac Jones maybe make some strides, make some improvements. And I wouldn't even be surprised if he takes over midseason if if Newton continues to struggle with all these weapons. But overall, just going to the overall draft that they had, I think they addressed basically all their needs. I think they got all their needs. They got Christian Barmore, at defensive tackle from Alabama, Ronnie Perkins at the defensive end. I think they got all of what they were looking for. I do wish they maybe had gotten a cornerback to develop because right now when you look at the depth chart, you have Stephon Gilmore as your number one, J.C. Jackson as your number two, and then I think your third would be Jonathan Jones. That would be the big one. So I kind of wish they had gotten a cornerback to maybe develop. Uh, But when you look at who they picked up so far, in the fifth round, watch out for Cameron McGrone, the inside linebacker from Michigan. Because I did talk last week about Devin McCourty getting up there in age. What about Donta Hightower in age? He's going to be 31. He is 31, I should say. Going to be 32 next year. So 
McGrone could really be this sort of stash for the future kind of linebacker for the Patriots once Hightower's time is up to let him develop. But they still got a ton of great linebackers with Van Noy, Judon. I think McGrone could be someone to watch for in the future. And then their first six-round pick, getting Joshua Bledsoe, the safety out of Missouri. I mean, come on, a Bledsoe in New England? That has to make sense. It has to make sense. But like I was talking about last week about Devin McCourty. McCourty's time is coming up. Bledsoe could be the guy. Of course, you still have Adrian Phillips and you have Kyle Duggar to develop. But Bledsoe could be a contender to take over that safety spot that Devin McCourty once had. It could be Bledsoe, it could be Phillips, could be Duggar. But I think just at least having all those options are going to be very important. And overall... I like what the Patriots did. I'd probably give it about a B, B plus for what they did in the draft. I mean, they got their cornerback. They got their quarterback. They're already pairing them up with all the wide res- or all the free agent signings that they made from this offseason. I like what New England did for this offseason. I think Patriots fans can be happy because this is going to be a better team than what you saw in 2020 when they went 7 and 9 because they have the pieces now. I still I still would put Buffalo as my AFC East favorites, but I think I could easily see New England get to the second best team in the AFC East, maybe leapfrogging Miami. I could see that. That's a possibility whether that be Newton or whether that be Jones at the quarterback spot. Those would be the highest expectations for me is probably a wild card spot for this New England team. Maybe like a 10-6, and six, sort of something like that, or a 9-7. and seven. I think definitely, they're definitely not going to be sub-500. I will tell you that right now, regardless of what happens. They're not going to be a sub-500 team, unless we have a giant injury take place, either at training camp or in the middle of the season or something like that. But I think this Patriots team is already... 10 times better than what they were in 2020. Now, speaking of a team who has to be better than they once were, the Boston Celtics. I mean, let's not talk about what the team has done. Let's talk about what Jason Tatum has done, okay? He's been a scoring monster, an absolute monster. I mean, in his last six games, listen to these point totals. 38, 19, 35, 60, 33, and 27. That's how many he's scored. Okay? Tatum has been unreal. And really, just that 60-point game and that overtime win against San Antonio, oh my goodness, what a game that was to watch. Not only being down 32, but watching Tatum make history. I mean, he tied Larry Bird's franchise record with 60 points. Okay? Anytime... You are in the conversation with Larry Bird about anything. You're doing something special. You are doing something special. I mean, just look at the numbers that he had in that 60-point game. 20 of 37 from the field. 5 of 7 from 3. 15 of 17 from the free throw line. And that's what's more impressive. Is It's not like a Stephen Curry or a Bradley Beal where they're making... 10 threes a game or something like that. This was just scoring, scoring, whether that's in the mid-range, attacking the basket, the three-point line, the free-throw line. Tatum is going to have to be this version if the Celtics are going to be title contenders, if they're going to be title contenders this year. Because every game is going to have to be like the win against Orlando, not so much the blowout, but just seeing games where Tatum's the strongest scorer, but you have Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, or etc. providing the support. Providing that support is going to be crucial. Tatum has to be the number one option on offense. They have to be. And you have to establish early if he's going to have a bad night. If he's having a bad night, you change that around. You put Jalen as the focus. You turn that around. You put Kemba as the focus that's going to be the biggest thing for the Celtics team because they are basically hanging on to that last spot 
in the sixth spot, avoiding the play-in. Avoiding the play-in. And if this Celtics team is going to have any kind of title chances this year, this is the kind of strategy they have to go with. They have to have Tatum as their focal point on offense. If he's struggling shooting or if he's getting double teamed, that's when you open up the floor for Brown, Walker, etc. I don't I don't know if the scoring outlook will really change things for the Celtics, if it really improves them, makes them better or anything like that. But all I know is that kind of strategy is what Brad Stevens has to unleash in order for them to be having a deep run in that NBA postseason. And now speaking of a deep postseason run, that's what everyone is expecting out of the Boston Bruins because they've only got four games left. Four games left. And that's including tonight when they start their two-game tilt against the New York Rangers. Now, they've already clinched their spot in the playoffs. So now it's all about improving their playoff position. That's going to be the biggest thing. Because like I said, they got a two-game stint at home in the Garden versus the Rangers. Then they host the Islanders on Monday, May 10th. And then their last game is the very next night in Washington, D.C. against the Capitals. Now, like I said, they already got their postseason, so it's all about position. Right now, they are sitting at 69 points, third place in the Eastern Division. Only four back of the Capitals and the Penguins. So, they do have four games left. They are going to have to, like I said, sort of a win-out sort of thing. The Rangers, they're kind of a little bit of a mess, which, by the way, I should just mention Tom Wilson should have been suspended. Should have been suspended for that absolute dirty move in that Rangers game a couple of nights ago. And I honestly don't blame the Rangers for dropping the glove, dropping the gloves right at the opening puck drop and fighting the Capitals. Does not surprise me at all. But the Rangers, they're already a mess. You've got two games against them. But you're one up on the Islanders. So you have to at least win that game against the Islanders. Get that get that space. Get that space ahead of the Islanders. Lock yourself in that three spot. Lock yourself in the three spot. And then you got the game against the Capitals. Even if you don't win, just impose your will like we've seen in past games against the Capitals. We see guys like Trent Frederick being a nuisance to Ovechkin and getting hit in the lower part of the region for it. They just have to match their physicality. But we've talked about the Bruins week after week after week. We know what this team can be. Can they do it in the postseason? That is going to be the biggest question for this Boston Bruins team. And then lastly, of course, we're talking about the Red Sox. Red Sox still playing well. They have come back down to earth a little bit. A little bit. They're still number one right now in the AL East. Game and a half ahead of the Yankees and the Tampa Bay Rays, two ahead of the Blue Jays, three ahead of the Orioles. Now, the Red Sox, they're having a a home stint right now against the Tigers. Tough game last night to drop to Detroit because Detroit is just, they used to be exciting at the beginning part of the year. Now they're 9-22, right at the bottom of the AL Central. I think, again, finding that consistency in the pitching rotation is going to be huge. I will say, Hearing Chris Sale that he was throwing off of the mound is a great first step. Because if your team is playing well at 18 and 13 right now, and if you can continue to stay that way, once you get your ace back and this pitching rotation can finally find its way, then this is going to be a very dangerous team. But just at this moment, when... Nathan Ivaldi is your ace. Eduardo Rodriguez is your second option. Not sure if that's the one you want to go into a postseason with. But obviously, they're not going to rush Sale back. And the Red Sox, their pitching's getting them through it right now. But they're going to have some tough tests. I mean, middle of May, they're going to be playing the Angels. Okay, that'll be next weekend. They're going to have to go to Buffalo, New York, or wherever Toronto plays. They move so much, I have no idea. But then they're going to have to face all the NL East teams. They're going to have to play the Yankees, the Astros. They've still got some tough tests coming up. And that's really going to be the early gut check for this Red Sox team. But like I said, this season doesn't really fully get underway 
until July and August. And then we will see if this Red Sox team are true title contenders. Finally, to wrap up our show, it is everyone's favorite segment, or at least mine at least. It's our LOL moment of the week. Now, this is sort of a cross-sport sort of LOL moment because we're talking about a former NBA legend who made a little bit of a change to his golf game. So, without any further ado, this week's LOL moment of the week goes to... Charles Barkley. That's right, Sir Charles. Now, like I said in the tease, it's an NBA legend who fixed his golf game. All right? And if you know anything about Charles Barkley and the game of golf, he has one of the worst golf swings ever. Ever. And I normally don't hit the ball very well, but even my swing is better than Charles Barkley. But lo and behold, on the PGA Tour Champions tradition in the Pro-Am, he's got, a, he's got a new little swing out there. And we're talking like an actual fluid motion golf swing. Now, if you look on Twitter from at Champions Tour Golf, the PGA Tour Champions, Charles' ver- first shot off the tee down the middle of the fairway. One fluid motion. Now, I'm just going to give all the credit to to Barkley on this one because he's 58 years old. And for him to be changing his golf game now at this point in his life and his career, I think it's great. I mean, that's why everyone loves Charles Barkley is because he just he speaks his mind. He does what he wants. But how about that swing? I mean, everyone used to laugh. When you watch that swing, he goes up, he pauses, 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 and then goes through. I mean, I still have no idea how he was even able to get that thing off the tee and not completely duff it when he has a swing like that. But we're finally seeing, we're finally seeing a full-fledged swing. We're seeing an actual swing from Charles Barkley and the... The best thing about this video, the first one off the tee, is you see Bo Jackson right after coming back. And he's like looking at Charles and he's looking at the fairway. He's like, did that go straight? And then he just gives him a hug. I mean, it, it's absolutely fun to watch. And then if you go on YouTube, you'll see a couple more videos uh, later on in that Pro-Am tournament. And you hear Charles saying himself, those days of bad golf, I say paraphrase because he said, again, the expletive starting with an S. Those days are are gone. He's serious about his golf game. Charles is very serious about his golf game. And I guarantee you, this is the only thing he will have above Shaquille O'Neal. This is one of the few things that he has because... We hear Shaq all the time on Inside the NBA, four rings, four rings, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, Chuck. Now Charles has just got a good golf game. I mean, these two can go out and play, and Charles can finally outdrive Shaq. I mean, I've never seen Shaq golf before, but I I think with this swing now, Barkley is going to get everyone he wants to beat. I mean, I, I shouldn't say everyone. He's not going to find himself at the at the PGA level or something like that. But, I mean, just just seeing where Barkley came from with that very first swing he had to where he is now. And he did say in the video, or in a video, that he gives all his credit to Stan Utley for fixing his swings. And if you know anything about the PGA, Stan Utley is a great mentor. Great mentor to have. But, I mean, he's got... He's got this fluid motion now, and he got it started all in this Pro-Am. I mean, I will give all the credit in the world to Charles Barkley. So if you enjoyed watching his sort of stutter swing, I guess is a good way to put it. If you enjoyed his stutter swing, you're going to have to go back 
to the old tapes to find that swing because this is a new golf man in Sir Charles Barkley. And for making this change, you have earned yourself this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak.